0: Hi, this is Scott Dixon, and you need more Front Wing.
1: Hello, and welcome to another more Front Wing podcast. I'm Steph Wallcraft, joined by my co-editor, Paul Delmy, and we are very pleased to have a surprise guest this evening, uh, our longtime friend, Tony DeZino, who's currently with NBC Sports Motorsports Talk. And... uh, it's so funny because Paul and I sat down to record the podcast tonight and just happened to see Tony pop online and went, hey, wouldn't it be fun to catch up with Tony? And he was free. And so here we are getting to, to bring him in to, uh, to have a great chat about the current goings on in the IndyCar series. We're very excited to have you back, Tony, and uh, looking forward to getting your insight on some of these topics.
2: Yeah, thanks. Uh, good good to be on again. Uh, I think it's the uh, first time this year. so. And- I think it, it is. Pop on of course.
1: Yeah, no, fantastic. Worked out very well. But before we do get to talking to Tony, we um we had the opportunity to catch up earlier this week with Novo Nordisk Chip Ganassi Racing driver Charlie Kimball who caught us up on his season thus far and um, shared some insights on the uh, resurgence of Chip Ganassi Racing in this recent uh, couple of of races and uh, just talked a little bit about the environment within the team, uh his hopes for his near near future of course taking all these uh, results that he's had recently and just taking that one extra step to to transfer them into uh finally making that top step on the podium and what he thinks it's going to take to do that and also covered co- um some other topics such as the fact that um despite what was previously re- previously reported he is apparently not in a contract year and so um he's he's looking forward to uh to carrying that stability through the end of uh, 2014 to see what he can make with uh, this re-energized Chip Ganassi Racing Team. So let's give that a a listen right now.
3: Steph Wallcraft of morefrontwing.com here speaking with uh, Chip Ganassi Racing Novo Nordisk driver Charlie Kimball. Charlie, thanks so much for your time today. Really great to get the opportunity to catch up with you for the first time on the More Front Wing podcast.
0: No problem i 'm looking forward to it
3: great um so let 's sort of just attack your season thus far chronologically and uh, we can start by talking about sort of earlier in the year and uh, we know that the uh, the chicken stable overall hasn't had sort of the results that the team has been accustomed to in its history. Um, but for you specifically, you had that one race earlier in the year that really stood out where you had that fantastic performance at Barber that netted you uh, a fourth-place finish that sort of surprised everyone when when everything around you seemed to not be going so well. Was there something in particular about that weekend that stood out to you? And then maybe you can sort of branch that out into a broader discussion of uh, your season and the team season before Pocono when things were not going as well as as they normally do?
0: Well, at Barber, we had a couple of days down there testing, and it's a track that I've always uh, felt good at. I got my first top ten in IndyCar at Barber Motorsports Park in, in 2011. Um, I had a podium there in Indy Lights. Um, so to going back there, it, it's a track I'm very comfortable with and enjoy. It's a beautiful setting, obviously. The city of Birmingham is... Fantastic, and one of the highlights of our season, so when we went in there, having had the open test in a couple of days' worth of work, we knew we had a pretty good car. We just had to stay on top of it and be smart with it. Um, fortunately the the tires were very similar to what we were expecting from the open test, and we were able to use that throughout the weekend to, to get really good pace um, you know during During the race, we maybe missed a little bit on strategy, sort of reds to blacks, and that's kind of where our podium went. We expected, especially after qualifying the first part of the race, to to come away with a podium, but still a top-five result in qualifying in the fast six. set us up for for Long Beach, for Brazil, and then into the month of May. It kind of started the momentum going. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as the Ganassi Stable, I don't know... Where the issues have been, because some some tracks Scott's been dominant, some tracks Dario's been dominant, some tracks I've been a little quicker. So, it, I think it's it's been a real narrow window for our setup. Mm-hmm. The nice thing was after a string of so many races back to back, we got the opportunity to go test at Sebring and really put our head down and focus on what direction we wanted to take as a team and work as. As one three-car team, and come up with a really good foundation, and from there we were able to to parlay that into some great results at Toronto. Obviously, with the the Target front row for race two, Scotty winning both races uh, was was really a uh, a turning point sort of in Toronto. It really started at Pocono, having Chicane Racing's first podium sweep. Um you know one through three and and to be a part of that and finish second That's my career best Indycar result and and I think being in a position to fight for the win you know right through the closing stages of the race was was some of my some of my highlights from from my IndyCar career so far
3: right uh, you spoke about the Sebring test, and that actually leads very well into uh, another question that I had for you um we know that that the whole team, all three cars, tested at Sebring and um, did a fair amount of, of uh, development on parts of the car that seem to have translated into some, some uh, much stronger results for you. We also know that um, the team got a new generation of Honda engine not too far before Pocono as well. Um, is there one or the other of those that you think has, has been more responsible for the, the sudden resurgence that we've seen from the team?
0: I think that it's all a package. I, I don't think you could ever put your finger on one specific thing that that helps you win or, or hurts your performance. It, it takes a whole package and being able to, to make some progress and have a better understanding of where we want to go mechanically and aerodynamically in the car from that Sebring test and then being able to, to have Honda, you know, the amount of effort they put in is, is unbelievable. I, I see firsthand how many hours the R&D guys put in and the, the amount of things we have to test and the developments we have to to try, even during the same generation of engine. Um, it has been very impressive. So to be able to, to get an upgraded spec and, and put that in, but then couple it with a competitive car package, you know, I don't think you can ever call out one thing because it's so much of a package. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, let's talk a little bit more about Honda. And one of the big talking points within the series right now is um, the decision that they had already made to move to a twin-turbo setup next year and then the mandate from the series that all engines participating from 2014 on will have um, twin turbos. Coming from the perspective of being a Honda driver, do you have any particular opinion on those uh, those those <laughs> changes?
0: there have been a little out of the loop the last couple of weeks and so missed those those bullet points, but I think that, you know, the, the one thing I do know is I have the utmost confidence in Honda's ability to be competitive, whatever the series regulations are. Um, I know that they will maximize their opportunities within the regulations, and, and Honda's built on a an ethic of competitiveness, on, on a core of competition. Uh, I'm not exactly sure of the quote, but I believe Mr. Honda-san way back when said, "You know, without motorsports, there is no Honda Motor Company." So that that sentiment, to me, if it's single turbo, twin turbo, those are just details. I know that Honda is as com- committed to winning as Chip Ganassi Racing is, and as I am personally.
3: That's a very good answer. Having just been sprung with that info. 90 seconds ago <laughs> um what about the um the has the dynamic in the shop changed at all in the last couple of weeks with the uh the increased momentum that's been going on i imagine it wasn't always a great place or a fun place to be earlier this year has it has it changed substantially in the since the last couple of races
0: i think the team definitely deserved the result having Got it at Pocono and, and then carried that momentum into Toronto. I mean, I think you could see how worthwhile it was and, and how hard everyone had been working when at Pocono, the, the fact that we were all three on the podium, I mean, if, judging by our facial expressions, I'm not sure you'd have been able, unless you knew otherwise, to pick out who had won the race because we were so happy for the team to <laughs> get the result that they they deserved. Um, so that. It's definitely helped the mentality, but it's you know they all know and and we all know as drivers and they know in the shop that the, the effort they put in will pay off at some point. It, it may be hard to remind yourself of that and remind themselves of that when it's been a, a couple of months since the last race wind or the last strong performance, but it definitely definitely does pay off. You just have to keep working towards it.
3: Right. What about the dynamic within the team this year versus last year? Earlier in the season, we had a chat with Graham Rahal, and uh, one of the things that he shared with us is that last year, being a part of the Ganassi organization, he um, never debriefed, he said, once with Dario or with uh, Scott Dixon. Has that changed at all? Do you feel more integrated into the uh, the target side of the organization this year than you were in the past?
0: Well, I think one of the challenges with four cars is there's, so much information and there's still a limited amount of time between sessions um, you know you still have the same amount of hours in the day and the same amount of hours between practice sessions between qualifying and the race that with four times the information and you know, it's 33 percent more and at that at that point it it almost becomes more of a hindrance than a benefit to to debrief Four at a time because you don't you aren't as efficient or as effective working together. Mm. I think with three there's there's only three data points to look at, so the opportunity to evaluate those three data points and and learn more from them is a little bit better. Um, I think that there's more complete communication back and forth. Um, I, you know, and I don't know that that the debrief it has to be in the same room because there are, there are great lines of communications between the engineers and when questions come up, you know, there's always been an open door policy and, and, you know, both Scott and Dario and their engineers have come over to our truck and we go back and forth and there's, there is still a lot of information that, that transfers and communicates back and forth. So I think it's, effective and I don't know if that's just the dynamic of having one less data point in that same amount of time to analyze it.
3: So sorry, just to to be clear, are you all three of you debriefing at the same time this year or are you still operating sort of more separately?
0: Well, it's very much a one three-car team and we, we share the information, but just the way the trucks are set up, it's easier to debrief uh, directly with my engineer, and then when we have questions and we have things to to talk about, which is almost every time, every <laughs> session, you know we'll we'll pop our head into the target truck or they'll swing by and pop their head into ours,
3: okay. Uh, now we've been through uh, two of these double header um, weekends now that now that we've been through this and, and and I mean keeping in mind that of course, the team would have been very happy with the results that they got in Toronto. Um, have you started to sort of solidify an opinion uh, on these as a, from a driver's perspective?
0: I'm not sure that I have a strong opinion one way or the other. I do think that it comes down to what the fans want, because as an IndyCar driver, we need to make sure we're keeping the fan base happy. And if that means that, you know, they can buy a weekend pass and see two races and, they, and more people will come out to the racetrack because of that, then we need to be doing double-headers. I don't think more than two or three a year is a, a good idea because it's, it's very demanding physically, and, and I'm not sure that you get two races as high a quality or as high a caliber as you do when you have a single-header weekend um, because everything's built towards that one event. The mechanics Focused on pit stops for that one event, the drivers, you know, willing to take the risk because they know, if if they've got a good car, you got a good car at that racetrack. You have to get the result in that one race, or you're never going to get the result until the next year. So, I'm not sure double headers are a great idea, but I also think that if the fans want them and are willing to to come and and buy tickets and watch them on T V, then we need to be doing them for that reason. You know, we're not in a position to be picky. Um you know, I think one of my mom's favorite sayings when when I, I couldn't decide what I wanted to eat for dinner was beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> and and at the moment it's not that IndyCar series were beggars, but we're not particularly we're not as solid as we were 15 years ago, 20 years ago, as a series, as a racing championship. So the, we can bring in, be it with double headers, be it with standing starts, be it with more ovals, be it with more road courses, whatever that is, we need to make sure that as a series we're making the most of that.
3: Right. You mentioned the standing starts, and that was my next question for you, actually. Of course, there was the uh, the aborted standing start in Race 1 at Toronto, and then the successful one going into Race 2. Um, now that you've been through that experience once, do you have a strong feeling about those either way?
0: Um, I like standing starts. I, I did them for five years when I was racing in Europe. Uh, my, my standing start in Toronto was average to poor, so <laughs> I would say I, I'd rather not do them again, but I think we'll we'll have the opportunity to get a little more practice in um, before we, we try the next one at Houston. I do think that it, it looked awesome to see the 24 or 25 of us lined up in two lanes with the heat haze coming off the cars on the front straight and you know, with the princess gate in the background if you're shooting from the back of the grid. And, I mean, I think that's that's an incredible shot. and And it, it adds another element to the challenges we face as drivers um and it's it's another thing that we need to try and master um so again if the fans want to see it i think as drivers we're professionals we need to figure out how to do it
3: um so you this year are in a contract here with uh with ganassi racing and um i presume that your desired outcome is to remain with the team but uh, well, maybe I'll let you answer the question. Is that your desired outcome, and what is your expected outcome?
0: Well, the, the first thing, actually, I will make a point that uh, Chick has always said, and, and and I will follow in his footsteps here, that a, as a rule, we don't talk about contracts. We don't discuss contracts mm-hmm. um, as, as a team and, and as a driver. Um, and I'm, I'm locked in through next year at Nova Nordish Shipping. Okay, okay. so that, that, I'm really was mis-reported excited then. to stay there. Great. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure where the information was, but the, uh, press conference before the beginning of last year, so towards the end of 2011, um, with the multi-year extension, um, of the number 83 car program, um, was, 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 accurately reported at that point. So I, I don't know where it came through, but at the moment I'm extremely happy with the Ganassi organization. I really enjoy working with Scott and Dario. Um, you know, working with everybody. The chance to race in the twenty four hours of Daytona with Scott Pruitt, Montoya, Memo Rojas, you know, and, and be a part of a team with Jamie McMurray, Jelly Han. You know, and Scott and Dario was fantastic. It was a one of a kind event and to be able to do it with guys like that, I learned so much that that I think has really helped me throughout this year and, and handle things that were unexpected or, or handle things situations that arose throughout the IndyCar series, you know, having driven the, the Rolex prototype.
3: So I presume we'll see you at that again next year then, as long as uh, you're invited to do so. <laughs> Any it,
0: other... Uh- I would love to. I, I told Chip that I'd love to do it again. I had a great time, uh, you know, with my first one under my belt. I feel like, I hope I'd be able to contribute a little bit more uh, in the, the coming years. Um, and if he'd have me, I'd love to do it again. But again, that's a that's a call way above my level.
3: <laughs> are there any other uh, sort of international events that you've that you've taken a look at? I know the V8 Supercars, uh, the Gold Coast event was a pretty popular one for international drivers last year. Have you looked at something like that, or something? i um, getting back to your roots in Europe, or are you pretty happy just to sort of maintain your program as it is?
0: Well, I think at the moment I have plenty to focus on. <laughs> um, there, there's a quite a lot going on in IndyCar, and and need to really focus on that. Um, down the line, I would love to race the 24 Hours of Le Mans. I'd ru- love to race the 24 Hours of Nürburgring. Um, I'd love to race the Bathurst. Uh, Gold Coast and the V8s would be a lot of fun. Um, you know, any of those sort of iconic uh, events around the world are are something that, that are definitely on my list as a driver. I mean, mm-hmm. I think you ask any driver most of the time... You know have helmet will travel type thing. and it, any opportunity to get in a race car somewhere in the world is one that as a driver we jump out
3: right um so the one thing that uh, has eluded you so far in your career at IndyCar is uh, is that win that that uh, that final step up on the podium what skill do you think that you need to master to take the potential that you've shown so far and just just flip that final switch to get the that first victory
0: i think it's it's going to take a clean weekend um a a a race weekend of no mistakes because that's what it takes to to win in the series these days it's so competitive that if you make a mistake someone's going to beat you um and we need to put it all together we have as a team we have the abilities we have the skills um we have the the personnel and and we have the talent. We just have to put it together, have a perfect weekend in pit lane, in the engineering office, on the racetrack, and and myself and and a healthy dash of luck. I mean, that's when you've got you know, a twenty four car field, and and I think in any particular weekend, sixteen to eighteen of them legitimately could win the race. You need a little bit of luck, and you need some opportunities to fall your way, but. I think the the more we continue to build momentum, the more likely we'll make our own luck and end up on the top staff.
3: Great. Uh, one final thing I wanted to ask you about. I only found out about this today, so I think maybe um, it's not as common knowledge as it could be. One of the things that seems to be setting you apart as an IndyCar driver is that you're blogging, uh, if I'm not mistaken. It looks like there are some pretty recent posts up on your site. Did you want to talk about that?
0: Yeah, I find that the, the sort of social media stuff, blogs, my Twitter handle, Race With Insulin, um, you know, my Facebook fan page are a great way to interact with my fan base, not just here in the U.S., but around the world. Um, I have a lot of friends, a lot of supporters in Europe from my years over there, and, and they like to know what's going on in my life, you know, if if it's... What I'm doing, traveling these sponsor events I'm doing, and especially at the racetrack. So, I find that that a blog is a great way to to keep in touch, um, and during the race weekends, you know, to do those live blogs. You know, I, I have a little bit of help then to to be able to dictate what I want to say and get it down in writing, and be able to to link it to the right sites because I'm awful at that usually. <laughs> um, but also to to put photos in and and to have real up-to-the-minute updates of, of how the weekend's going. is a great way to interact. And, and I think a way for, for me to pull the curtain back on the wizard a little bit, to show fans a behind-the-scenes look of what life as an car driver is really like, now, how much time I spend in the race car versus out of the race car, and what I'm doing when I'm not in the race car, and all of the different things that make up me as an car driver be able to share those you know, with with everyone who, who's interested it is fantastic, and I think that's one of the great things about the age we live in of of instant updates and being connected at most racetracks. Although some racetracks have not great cell coverage, hmm. um, but but able to get online and really share that that behind the scenes look, um, you know. And on my Twitter. During races, I have a pit lane reporter that, that tweets updates throughout the course of the race so that, you know, they're listening to the, the race radio and they can hear really what's going on and and be able to give that firsthand look behind the scenes to, to whomever wants to follow me on Twitter.
3: Right. So on Twitter, we've got... At Charlie Kimball, which is your per, your own account, and then there's also at Race for Insulin, which is the account you just talked about, correct? With the
0: Right, it's it's at Race with Insulin. Race with um, insulin, yes. Yeah, and that's it's all part of the Race with Insulin program with Melanordisk, the, the race with insulin booth in the fan village, the visits I do to, to diabetes camps, to children's hospitals, that whole sort of National program uh, throughout the year, both at the racetrack and away from the racetrack.
3: Right, and the website for the blog is charliekimble.blogspot.com
0: Correct. That's okay. one.
3: Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share so much with us of uh, what's going on with with you right now. I'm sure you're looking forward to getting back to Mid Ohio after missing that race last year. Um, it, it, walk,
0: walk, it is a racetrack there. that it's a racetrack I absolutely love and. Um, not exactly sure what I did to make it mad at me enough to break my hand last year, but uh, I'm going to go have a couple of words with it tomorrow and make sure that we're good coming into this race again, because it's, as I said, it's a racetrack I really enjoy coming off. Yeah, the, the performance at Barber, the last permanent road course we raced at, um, I think we've got the opportunity to to show really strongly, although, I mean, if if anybody was a betting person, the odds have got to be pretty stacked for, for Scott Dixon winning four out of the last six or something. And He's uh, he's pretty quick around here. So if we can learn from him and then figure out how to outfox him if possible and <laughs> maybe sweep that podium again for the boss.
3: Fantastic. Well, best of luck to you uh, this coming weekend and for the rest of the season.
0: Thank you very much. All appreciate right.
3: it. Thank you, Charlie. Take care. And
1: fantastic to hear from Charlie Kimball, our first time having him on the podcast, I believe, so it was definitely great to have that opportunity to catch up with him and hear about his perspective of some of the uh, the dynamics within the the Chip Ganassi Racing Organization, and uh, which is one that doesn't always um, have a tendency to be very open with what goes on behind the scenes, but Charlie was very forthcoming, so we thank him for that. Now let's look ahead to the upcoming race weekend at mid-Ohio, and of course we um, also had a chance, some of us did, um, <laughs> anyway, a uh, chance to look at the timesheets from the open test uh, that happened today. Some of the things that we heard, um, apparently it was rainy for a good part of the day, and a number of people didn't get to get out on uh, early in, in the uh, in the morning, but some useful running was done in the afternoon, and I believe that Graham Hall did not get out at all. Tony, did you want to, to cover that? Because you were the one who actually mentioned that as we were doing the preamble at the before the show
2: Yeah, and it's uh, it's a couple of things of note with Graham uh, They've mentioned uh, this, First off, it's the second day of testing this year That he's missed Because I believe he had a similar issue At, at the second day of Barber um, Where he lost that day as well So he had, a, he had a fuel issue today He only got three laps in One of which was timed uh, the only, the only thing he really was able to get in edgewise was a, uh, an Instagram pick showing Brian Hunter Ray clearing the track off this morning. <laughs> so, uh, tough, tough times ahead because with Jerry Hughes now being reassigned, uh, in, into his new role as director of development for the team, they're, they're kind of, they're really kind of scratching their heads and they need all the track time they can get.
1: Right, a lot of changes actually within that organization that were announced recently. So um some growing pains going on there for sure. Interesting to see that uh, there was only the one Honda in the top five, but maybe, and, and it could be considered surprising to see which one it was. Scott Dixon only came in in six. Not that we put too much weight on testing day times, of course, but uh, P2 today was Simon Pagno, who, of course, as we know, has had uh, quite a bit of running time at this track for with the ALMS, which... Uh, of course, will not be joining the IndyCar series uh, this weekend at Mid-Ohio, I believe for the first time since IndyCar started coming back to this track in 2007. Is that correct, Tony?
2: Unless they were there in 2007 as well, um, and I'm not sure what the date was for that year off the top of my head, but I know since 2008 it, it has been the, the joint weekend uh, of, of both of both series. So um, it was a little surprising that they, they dropped it off the schedule for this year. But I think it had to do with they, they added an additional event at Circuit of the Americas later this year, uh, in Austin. So they wanted to keep it to 10 races and, uh, one was a casualty. Um, Mid Ohio's still kind of figuring out where they'll, they'll fit on the, uh, combined USCR schedule next year. So there's both the August option, which ALMS had occupied with this and uh, the June option that the Grand Am has had in recent years. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of
1: the things that we'll be watching, of course on the ground at mid Ohio is what that does to uh, the on the ground attendance, because um is it going to be enough incentive for people to arrive at the track um, after having done sort of long drives to get there if they don't get to see the two races? Or will the four levels of the road to Indy all being in the in the same place at the same time be enough to incite people? Or, you know, is the fact that it's a big Honda company picnic anyway, mostly um, make very little difference at all and be very interesting to see? And I don't think anybody really knows the answer until we get there.
2: Yeah, and there's also Pirelli World Challenge on the schedule as well, as there have been in many of the IndyCar events this year. So they still have four classes and more than 70 cars entered, so they'll still have enough events. It's kind of going to be similar to, I think it's similar exactly to Toronto and St. Pete in terms of the number of series and classes that are all there.
1: And is of course, the common thread there of the same promoter being responsible for all of those. So perhaps uh, not surprising in that regard that they would have it figured out, that people want to see lots and lots of track action. And uh, it'll be interesting to see whether precisely what that track action is makes any kind of difference in uh, in the attendance numbers. So we'll definitely keep an eye out for that. Um, Was there anything else that was notable for either of you guys in the the results, the timesheets from the testing today? Paul, did you want to actually speak on this podcast, perhaps?
4: Hi. (laughs) Hi, Paul. (laughs) Hey. Uh, I think it's great to see Sebastian Bourdais back up uh, near the top of the list. He was in at fourth today, Um, coming off such a, a, a stellar weekend that he had at Toronto three weeks ago which kind of came out of nowhere with the rest of his season. You kind of wondered is that a flash-in-the-pan sort of thing, or are they going to be able to sustain this? With him coming and backing that up this weekend, or at least in the open test today, you know it kind of gives you a lot of hope that, that he'll be able to, to perform very well. He's got a lot of experience at Mid-Ohio as well. So it would be great to see him have another great weekend like he had at Toronto. A uh, little bit surprised to see Takuma Sato down in 14th. Uh, you know they ran so strong on the road and street courses earlier in the year. I was expecting them to be a little bit higher up the charts. Um, a great debut uh, for Luca Filippa or Filippi. Eighteenth, um, not great and impressive, but as far as I know, that's his first day in an Indy car. I think. I don't think he's had previous yeah, test experience.
2: Yeah. He never had any opportunities with Ray Hall last year. He was he was at right. Barber for at least one test, but he never got he never got any actual running any running in.
4: Yeah, so only he
1: heard for, his name around enough that it's easy to to think that he had actually managed to get some seat time. But
4: yeah, so for him to come in just over a second behind behind the top time of the day, uh, you know, ahead of guys like uh, New Garden, Frank um, uh, you know, I'd say all in all, a pretty impressive. A pretty impressive debut for for the for him and the uh, in the Brian Hurd Autosport ride that you know let's let's face it that ride hasn't been you know on right the top of the list anyway so it's great I think it's a pretty good debut there so Jeez, It'll be an I interesting even, weekend
1: I hadn't even noticed that Dario was so low down on the timesheet I hadn't scrolled that far down um, but I mean. As we said earlier, we don't necessarily put so much weight into the test times. We have no idea what they were trying to achieve today, but uh, certainly not used to, even having the season that he's had, not used to seeing Dario quite so far down there. Right,
4: but he only ran ran 16 laps today, so I do not put a whole lot of weight in it. You look at the the timesheet, most people were setting their best laps pretty late in the day, it looks like. So with Dario, I mean, he set his... On his thirteenth of sixteen laps, but yeah. you would expect him if he's getting up in the forty to sixty lap range, like most of the other drivers were, you gotta expect to bump himself up the up the charts a little bit.
1: Tony, did you want to jump in there?
4: Yeah, and I will say
2: is one of the things that I'm really interested to note is it, it seems hard to believe, but this is the first permanent road course event since Barber um, back in April. Mm-hmm. So. Trying to look at where some of the guys that were strong there. Vautier was a fast six guy. He was only 19th while Pagano was second. Uh, Kimball is 10th. So, you know, we, we had the interview with him earlier. Um, and I think, I think Charlie's kind of a sleeper this weekend because for whatever reason, he's, he's done the best on the permanent road courses. So I would not be surprised to see him have another Firestone fast six appearance.
1: Absolutely, let's talk about voce for a second because this kid came out of the gate just blazing, and it seems as though he's kind of fizzled out. Is it just maybe more obvious than than it might otherwise have been just because he's the only rookie in the field and everybody's looking at him that way, or is there a more serious problem to speak to here, Do you think? Tony?
2: He certainly didn't earn any. Uh, he certainly didn't earn any round of applause from Bobby Ray Hall after after the incident in Toronto with uh, with Graham. I, I don't know. It, it, I've heard from a number of people that he's he's almost trying a bit too hard right now. He hasn't had a he hasn't had a consistent sponsor at any point this year. Not that that necessarily impacts performance, but when you've got you know a, you're kind of going race to race with whatever your your backer is, you almost want to kind of try to keep impressing them. I guess it's weird because he has Alan McDonald as an engineer, and usually you'd expect that that you know those two being able to work together would would pay dividends. But mm-hmm. he's, I think he maybe set the bar so high from the start that we didn't expect him uh, to fall back as much because it's, it's not bad, but it it, it does. there there's so tight uh, gaps that you'd be surprised how far back you could go.
1: Right, so. Uh, we mentioned Luca Filippi, or Paul did, a little earlier on, and um, we're now at the point in the season, of course, where we're playing musical chairs. So let's talk about some of the other... um seat replacements that will be taking place this weekend. Of course, we've all heard by now that Ryan Briscoe uh, has has not quite recovered enough from his broken wrist that he suffered in Toronto. Had hoped to be back for this race, but uh, is not to be. So, it will be Oriel Servia in the number 4 Panther Racing machine this weekend. Um and of course, that team has worked with him is it t- two season two two races this season that he's he's been with them? Or was it yeah. just yeah.
2: He's so, um Texas and Iowa
1: Right. So, um, that tryout continues, although from speaking to, um, a couple of people on the team in Toronto, it sounds an awful lot like the team is trying out for Ryan Briscoe just as much as Ryan Briscoe is trying out for the team at this point. So I don't know how, um, much headway Oriole's really going to make there, although certainly his name is, is, um, in the discussions for a couple of the other seats that appear to be opening up as the silly season starts to unfold. Um, and here's the other one that I found actually very interesting to learn that he was even all that interested still in IndyCar is James Davison, one of the, um, of course, the storied Davison family of Australian racers. And we know him from uh, competing in Indy Lights several years ago. Um, and I think he's actually got some pretty strong results at Mid Ohio from that series. And uh, so he will be in the number 18 Dale Coin machine this weekend. Um, as I said, a bit surprised to learn that he was still circling around. I thought maybe he had moved on, but evidently not the case. So it will be interesting to see what he can make of that. Um, did either of you have any thoughts on on that? Any? Are you less or more surprised than I was?
4: <laughs> I think it's definitely a, a name that, like you said, came out of nowhere. You know, back when he w- was it, uh, 2009, I guess, when he was driving in in Brian Hurd Autosport for the Indy Lights. And at that time, they had a a um, they they had a. I'm sorry, he drove for I think Vision Racings. Yes. Um, Indy Lights team, and I think they were in some sort of technical alliance with BHA at that time. If I seem to remember that far back, that's it's hard to believe that was four years ago now. Mm. Uh, but yeah, my understanding, he had been doing a little bit of maybe spotting or driving coaching. I can't remember for whom it was, but he hasn't been totally removed from the IndyCar scene, but it certainly was not, you know, when you, when you start to think about drivers that are on the short list of uh, of teams going into or, or auditioning for 2014, James Davison certainly, I don't know, was on the top of many people's list. So it it is surprising that, that Brian Herta would have plucked him out of the, the group to uh, to audition him for for fourteen, but like you had said, he's had some pretty strong runs, um, you know, in Indy Lights at Mid Ohio, um, and if I'm not mistaken, was Davidson the one that BHA put in the car at Kentucky when Savedra stepped out a couple of years ago, or was that Daniel Harrington?
1: I thought that was Stefan Wilson.
2: I, I think it was Harrington. Wilson it's, was. Yes, the, it was. The You're team, right. The teammate and uh, okay. The thing about Davo that's that's very hard to forget, or, or easy to forget, I should say. Um, he finished second in that year's Lights Championship in 2009, only behind Hildebrand. Again, of guys head of guys like uh, Plowman, Kimball, Hinchcliffe. Uh, Pippa, a number of others that have, have already made their, their debuts. So, it's not for a lack of, of talent. And he's, he's been around with uh, a few various teams. I've seen him in a number of sports car events, some of the road to indie teams. I think he was with JDC at one point. Uh... And as soon as he was was rumored to get the test uh, about a month or so ago, that's pretty much was the first indication. Okay, if we can we can figure out a way to get the the budget together, he'd be in the uh, he'd be at next to the revolving door of uh, of Dale's second car. So, uh, you know, g- good on him. I, I think he, he certainly tried and hung around long enough. And, and to see someone that's that's been trying for going back to Atlantic's 2006. Uh, you know, it's not for a lack of effort, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of happy to see it.
1: I had forgotten that he had done that test, actually. Good memory. <laughs> yeah, so perhaps uh, not, shouldn't be as surprising as maybe it seems to, because to, I do remember hearing that that test had gone well, so, yeah, good for him. We'll see what, what shakes out. Um Let's actually take a look at some very interesting statistics surrounding Scott Dixon coming into this weekend. So, Dixie is looking for his uh, fourth win in a row in 2013, that we already know. He's also looking for his third win in a row at Mid-Ohio. And uh if you look at the seven times that the Indy Racing League slash IZOT IndyCar Series has raced at Mid-Ohio, Scott Dixon has won five of those. Sorry, six times. Scott Dixon has won four of those. If he wins this weekend, it'll be the fifth time out of seven. And I mean, that's we're at the point now where everybody's, you know, wondering who might like if it's not going to be him, who would it be? Right. It's it's the the whole if it's not him who's next on the list because it's probably going to be him thing. Um, though it is an interesting little, little factoid that I found as I was searching through st- statistics today, that um, one of the two years that Dixon missed at Mid Ohio was 2008, the year that he won the championship. So that, yeah. uh, you know, apropos to nothing, but for people who like superstition, if he misses this weekend, maybe he's on the road to something. On the other hand, he is totally within reach, where if he were to get the win this weekend and uh, Ryan Hunter Ray had another bad luck weekend as he has tended to over the last little while, then um Scott could suddenly vault into possibly even the lead of the championship if things go really poorly for ryan Hunter Ray so uh and pretty and Elio. and Elio sorry for Elio. that's that's what I meant um so yeah, a pretty pivotal weekend in terms of uh waiting to see how the championship plays out. Um, can either of you bet against Dixie here?
4: I don't no. know that it's necessarily <laughs> a lock just because of the the randomness of this year. It just seems like weird things just keep happening over and over and over again. But <laughs> I uh, he would certainly be my smart money. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to bet against him.
2: As much as I wouldn't want to bet against him, I mean this is the first time and I don't remember how many races where we've actually come into a weekend with, okay, there's, there is the clear target on the back where this year it's been so diverse, you don't know who's going to be. I mean, the, the only two I could see off, off the top of my head would be Pagino and Power. Pagino's run so well at this track. Uh, it's another Honda home race. Uh, you know, I think he, he has not had, despite the Detroit win earlier this year, he hasn't had kind of a, a huge kind of statement weekend and something tells me that, that he's kind of trying for that this weekend so if, if not Dixie that would be that'd be my other my other guy to look at
1: I'm kind of surprised to hear you say the name power Tony because we, we've all been talking so much lately about how he's really not been at the standard that we've expected do you do you think that he's got something up his sleeve for this weekend
2: I hope so I I think so I mean I you never know you you need Helio needs a buffer too for the the championship stake and, and mm-hmm. who better to help you know defend against Dixon than his teammate, if it, it's been the reverse in recent years.
1: Now, Elio, let's let's talk about Elio because he is the uh, the potential spoiler in this in this uh, instance as well because he may not have great results because they haven't been there to be had. Scott's been taking them all, but. Mm. Um, in terms of permanent road course performance, Elio is certainly somebody that you look to as a potential winner at these things. So there is also the possibility that he could come out very strong. I think he was fifth on the timesheet for today. So, you know, um Penske possibly overdue for their, their strong weekend that, uh, that has eluded them this week, this year as well, other than uh, Elio's win at Texas. So never know. Could that could play out that way as well. I still wouldn't, Against Dixon, if my life depended on it, though. <laughs> so we shall see what happens if um, Dixon does win this weekend. Though there's another aspect to this, and that's the uh, the Manufacturers Championship. The points, as they stand right now, now I don't have it right in front of me, but I believe it's a three point gap. I'm just going to look it up.
4: Uh, one, it's one race, yeah.
1: So uh, morefrontwing.com/slash/event summary. That's where you can go to find this information at a glance at any point in time. I'm just going to pull it up right here. Chevrolet 99, Honda 96. So very, very close. And I believe that if Dixon or any other Honda driver were to win this weekend, that would put Honda in the lead of the Engine Manufacturers Championship. And I think that might be for the first time since competition began at the beginning of last year, wouldn't it?
4: They would be tied if Honda wins this weekend.
1: Okay. So we we still have to wait a little bit longer then. But it the potential is there and I do believe that Honda has not actually led that championship yet since since competition started. So that is something definitely for the next little while to keep an eye out for because uh they will be very happy campers. Certainly they seemed quite happy when uh when we had the opportunity to speak with some of the Honda people um after the the weekend in Toronto they were definitely feeling like they they had uh Started to find their way again, so uh, worth well, there, worth keeping an eye on.
4: There is a bit of an asterisk to what you said because although it's about a you know ab- about as a, as long shot as you can probably get, if James Davison somehow wins this weekend, yes, he's already that number 18 entry is already on engine six. One of the new rules this year is that if you are on your engine beyond five. You're, if you win, those points don't count toward the Manufacturer's Championship, which starts to bring in some other interesting aspects of this because as we move beyond mid-Ohio, you look at the names of the drivers who are already on Engine 5. You're looking at Dario, uh, Graham Rahal, James Jakes. As I said, uh, Davidson, the number 18 entries on number 6. Um, Joseph Newgarden is on number 5. What do all of those drivers have in common? Those are all Honda entries mm-hmm. right there.
1: That list, by the way, can be found on morefrontwing.com. Right now, it's uh, it's one of the top. It's in uh, the ticker at the top of the page. But you can also, if it does leave the ticker in the next couple of days, you can find it down at the bottom in the in the headline section. Uh, and that will give you the table that shows the the engine that every entrant is on right now in that. Uh, in, in that engine consumption update that was released by IndyCar a couple of days ago. One more thing to note about the um, the over five engines rules, and this one is not a new one, but it is worth noting, is that if you change into your sixth engine, no matter the circumstance, whether you've mileaged it out or not, you will serve a 10-spot penalty on the starting grid for the following race. So we're getting into the point in this season where that is factoring into things as well.
4: Absolutely, and there's a lot of miles still left in this season. and uh, I would, just glancing over the list without counting numbers here, I would say at least half of the cars are on engine number four. You know, it, So if a lot of these guys start to have, if they have an engine problem this weekend, that puts them on, on engine five, which means they would have to go to Sonoma, they'd have to go to Baltimore, they'd have to run two races at at, uh, at Houston and survive all of those miles assuming they would mileage out around those four races to get a fresh engine without penalty at, at Fontana.
1: Now, here's one thing that I wasn't clear on, and maybe one of you has the, the answer to this question, and if not, I'm going to try to seek it out this weekend. Um, once you get into your sixth or older engine, is, does the rule still apply where you can get a free change if you have the problem during the race? Or does that get forfeited when you get up into the 6 or higher? Do you know the answer to that, either of you?
2: I'm pretty sure what happens, and I would need to double-check on this, but as I remember what happened last year, this happened at Takuma Sato a bunch, where he had an engine failure, I believe, at Sonoma on his 6th. So he went into his 7th, or he was on his 5th, and he went to his 6th. So he had an auto 10-spot grid penalty regardless, even though... If you're not on the five engines prior to that, say if you have an engine failure in race, you can get a change out no penalty. So I think it's once you exceed the max number of engines that the grid penalty applies for the next race. Right.
1: So you get the penalty regardless of whether your change happens as a result of a race time issue or not. Right.
2: I, I believe so.
1: Yeah, that's now that you're saying that. And I'm I'm speaking out loud. I, I seem to recall that situation from last year as well. Um, I went through the rule book just to see if I could find anything earlier this week. And I it wasn't clear because the part about the race time exemption is in a different section than the part about the the. Um, taking the grid penalty every time for your six or higher, so I might just ask around about that this weekend just to be absolutely sure. But um, I suspect that that you're right on that, Tony. That seems to be my memory. So.
4: Now you only take the grid penalty though for the first race you run with that particular engine. Right. 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 It's so, for the So if you go right. on your tenth, on your sixth engine, you don't take a penalty every event that that sixth engine runs. But
1: weren't there people who served two penalties sometimes? last year like they would serve one for putting in the new engine and then one at the next race for the fact that it hadn't been mileaged out
4: i think that happened after indianapolis if i i can't
1: i i seem to remember this being the case but i'd have to i'd have to go look it up i'm not i'm not 100 sure on that so anyway we will get the answers to that and uh, and we will get them to you so uh, let's move on. And this is, this next topic on our list here is one that definitely we want to tap, uh, Tony on because Tony has spent, uh, many years with a, with a deep involvement in the sports car paddocks. So, um, this news is very interesting out of Sarah Fisher Hartman Racing that they've tapped Lucas Lure to run a second car for them at the Sonoma race. Uh, apparently with the entire Muscle Mill Picket Racing, um, ele- LMP1 team from uh, ALMS coming with them with an eye to potentially moving over to the Izod IndyCar series next year when that class disappears from the United Sports Car Racing uh, uh, universe I guess <laughs> we'd say so um, Tony what are your thoughts on uh, how you expect them to do and what you expect the outcome to be with your knowledge of that team and, and what their goals are
2: well, to to give a back a bit of background on the entry, it will have it will have if not all the picket crew, some of the picket crew with Greg on the pit box, Brandon Fry who has engineering experience in IndyCar, I believe he was last with uh Conquest with a uh, uh Pippa's entry at the five hundred in two thousand eleven. Um but the car is a second chassis that's owned by Steve Wyrick of R W. Mhm. Construction company and and NSH, excuse me, SFHR had a press release back at the end of June that outlined why Rick owns a second car. The team has three cars, but they didn't run a second car at Indy this year. So I'm not sure when the second car reappeared, but it's the first time they've had two since last year's 500. So they, they, they were very careful in the release to say, okay, although there was Muscle Milk support, it's not a Muscle Milk picket racing entry, it is an SFHR with RW entries. So that's the first distinction. Um, The second, Lucas hasn't been in an open-wheel car since 1998, a Formula 3 car. So, uh, although he's a bit uh, out of of open-wheel training, he is one of the fastest drivers in sports car racing. And it's a shame that really you don't get to see the prototype guys go get their kind of proper recognition because they're only racing two or three other cars. Mm -hmm. And this year in particular, the P1 class has been so watered down. They had uh Rebellion for a couple of events, but they, they've they shifted to a, a full WEC schedule, no more ALMS events, and Dyson hasn't been able to put up a challenge. So Muscle Milk has essentially gone unchallenged. So, so we're stepping into an open-wheel setting. He'll have the chance to race 23, 24 other cars for the first time, and that is, I'm sure, a challenge he'll relish. And I think given the engineering strength that the team has, I would not be surprised to see them... I don't think they're top 10 quality, but I think they can certainly get in the front half of the field and maybe advance out of their, their first round of, of qualifying on Friday, or on Saturday, excuse me. And that's going to be the most important part of the weekend because Sonoma is so, so difficult to pass on that I think they're just – they're really kind of testing the waters. They're seeing how it works. And, and Lucas, I think, can actually provide a, a bit of feedback. You know, just he's driven such a high downforce car in these P1 cars to, to see how they compare. I don't think he'll have too much of a sweat getting into it.
1: Here's a theoretical for you, Tony, and, and we're getting a little off topic here, so uh, let's not spend too much time on it. But let's say that um, Pickett Racing and Lucas Lure do make the switch to IndyCar next year. What happens to Klaus Graf?
2: Klaus has, uh, other business interests with, with muscle milk and with cytosport, so he could be reassigned to just doing business in Germany or, you know, I don't, I don't see him as, as an open wheel guy necessarily. Graf has had some NASCAR experience, but, uh, I, I think, you know, if, if, and it is hypothetical because there's still several directions that they're trying to, play out on the, the sports car side, I think you'd see Lucas more than you'd see more than you'd see Class.
1: Right. Okay, um, here's another fun one to tackle that's uh, very heavy in the hypotheticals. We've all heard the rumor that Kurt Busch, um, after his test with Andretti Autosport at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, has uh, been making a lot of noise about racing there next May with Andretti Autosport. Well, now there's a new twist in that apparently – um, he feels that if he shows up to IMS Blind, he's going to have little hope of, uh, of success. And so he's now showing interest in running the um, the season-ending race at Fontana with Andretti Autosport. And all of this, of course, um, is top to bottom mentioned that uh, it's all dependent on sponsorship. And so what it really is is a pitch for money and using, using the press to do that. But um, definitely is something that will be getting people talking. Here's my question that I'm going to pose to Paul first. Will this move the needle for IndyCar in any way, in your opinion?
4: I think it will. I think he has enough supporters and detractors. I think there are people that want to, that would watch just to see him succeed. And I think there are people that would watch just to see him fall flat on his face. I think it, it would be a temporary thing. I, I mean, if he comes and joins IndyCar full-time, which I don't think he's even remotely considered doing, I think it would kind of be like the Danica effect where it would peak and kind of fall down fairly quickly. But on a one or two off-race uh, event, yeah, I think it would. I think it would bring some new eyeballs to the series, whether those stay around long-term or not. I don't know. But certainly it would it would help a an event here and there.
1: Tony, any different thoughts on that?
4: I think we have enough
2: data from the races AJ Allmendinger drove earlier this year that he didn't provide nearly the sense on the needle that that anyone might have expected and I think you know Kurt would do far more than that. Uh you know as as Paul mentioned, you know, you either love him or hate him and I think he's enough he's enough of a talent. He got up to I think it was 218 or 219 at Indy that he's got the chops. It's uh it would be another Andretti Autosport car to help counter The title attack if and when, you know, assuming Hunter Ray is still in championship contention at that point, uh, that, you know, it it, it makes a lot of sense, to to be honest. I I think there will be at least one, possibly two additional cars for Fontana, and that could be one of them.
1: Um, Perhaps surprising in a a way that uh, he's even willing to do it because we've heard so much about how there are a number of NASCAR drivers out there who have either done their time in open wheel and are not interested in going back or are just flat out not interested in doing it in the first place. And uh, Kurt is one of the few guys we've seen in a while, I mean, other than A.J. Allmendinger, but I mean, his situation was a little different in that his hand was forced in a a way. Kurt is sort of willingly stepping into this at a time when it's a, an unusual thing to see. Is uh, is there anything about that that um, that might be surprising to either of you?
4: I don't see it really as surprising. I think NASCAR, you've got two different drivers. Really, you've got talkers and you've got drivers. And <laughs> I think you you got a lot of talkers like Jimmy Johnson and and Jeff Gordon and you know some of the other ones of that ilk who you know say the right words, you know, oh, I I grew up watching the Indianapolis 500. I would love to do it, you know, if the right opportunities come along. And you know, by the right opportunities means it's never going to happen. And then you've got doers, and you I mean, you can talk about either one of the Bush brothers, um Tony Stewart, you know, in his former years. I would have put there Robbie Gordon. I'd certainly put there these are the guys that are the ones that, you know, if, if it's got wheels and it's got a steering wheel, They'll drive it. And it hey, hey, hey,
1: hey, hold on. Tony Stewart went end-over-end last Us Weekend this week. I wouldn't I wouldn't be too quick to dismiss his willingness to put himself behind the wheel of anything he'll fit behind.
4: Oh, well, I'm not saying he's not willing to do it. I'm just saying Tony Stewart's not going to jump in an car again. I don't care what's, what the, the rumor is. He's never going to be in an car again. He may be involved in some way or other than an IndyCar, but his butt will not be in an car again. Um, but you you look at that that class of guys and they'll drive anything they can and, and whether that's NASCAR, IndyCar, as you said the uh, the open wheel dirt cars, if, if they wanted to run sports cars they would. Um, Kurt Busch, hell, he drove a, a a drag racer several years ago. You know these are guys that just want to drive and drive fast and anytime they can do that they're going to and they want to drive against the best competition and the best events. So it's not a surprise at all to me that Kurt Busch would. Would, would be interested in, in driving an Indy car in the Indianapolis 500. But he knows he can't just come in and jump in and do that right away. So it makes sense for him to have experience at another high-speed oval. I had kind of thought during May that he would run in Pocono, because I think that probably is a little bit more tailored toward Indianapolis than California. But we didn't see him there. I'd be surprised if we don't see him at California, though.
1: Is the assumption, then, that he wouldn't get as much track time as, as usual then in May due to other commitments. Is that is that the thinking behind that? Because certainly the month of May offers more track time at uh, Indianapolis or any racetrack really than you would ever get anywhere else.
4: I think he would have a lot of track time. I You know, NASCAR there I don't even know if he would qualify for the whatever their all-star race thing is called these days. Um, I, I can't even remember what it what next year's format will probably be, which they probably haven't announced, and it'll be different than whatever it was. Um, but I don't expect him in the in the entry that he's in this year to necessarily qualify for that. So I don't think he's going to have anything to hold him back from committing himself to Indianapolis during that week of practice. So I think he'll have plenty of seat time. I, do, I wouldn't expect him to have any trouble getting up to speed. He's already shown he can hop in and go pretty quickly. So I think if he decides to do it, can he win the race? Mm, I don't know if he can win the race, but you know, given enough track time, I think he would certainly—he'll hold his own. That's for sure.
1: Okay, well, here speaking of Indy, here's Paul's opportunity to go on a rant. Um, the uh, the rumor that was that was introduced in Robin Miller's um, Q and A column this week about uh, the apparent discussions going on about moving the Indianapolis 500 to a Monday race. Would you uh, <laughs> like to take this one over, Paul?
4: Uh, I don't even know where to start. It, it's bad on so many levels. I mean, it, it's, it's just an awful idea. There, First of all, there's no need to move it to Monday.
1: But the double, they, Paul, the double.
4: If they – the double has been done. It can be done. The, the the 500 is back to starting at noon Eastern time, which is where it always was when, when the double was run before. You know, It always started at 11 o'clock, what was basically central time, noon Eastern. So using the time as an excuse doesn't count anymore. Um, Monday, if you move it to Monday, you obviously, the biggest problem is you lose your built-in rain date. It's much more difficult for fans to hang around till Monday, travel back, and then get into, to work on Tuesday. The thing I would hate most is you just break up the flow and the continuity of the weekend. I mean, starting with, with carb day on Friday, then you have the driver's meeting, the parade, the autograph session, all that on Saturday, kind of, worked in with some of the other open wheel series if you want to go you know, like the night before the five hundred out at IRP or the little five hundred up at Anderson. And then you have Sunday, the the big day at, at the at the brickyard. I, I I just don't see really the benefit of moving it to my, there are so many downsides. I I don't I can't conceive really one strong upside to it. I don't think you're gonna help attendance. I don't think you're gonna help ratings. In fact, I think it would probably hurt ratings because most people look at Monday as really their their kind of chill day of the weekend. That's when they're out, you know, throwing brats and burgers on the grill, and they're going out to the lake. You know, they don't want to necessarily spend their Monday sitting in front of the TV to watch the 500. I think Sunday's the day it should be. It's been that way for 40 years. It's working. I don't think you necessarily need to change the 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 basics of the 500 just on the off chance that again, and go back to the talkers and doers, you might get a, a Bush brother. You might get Robbie Gordon again. You're not, you're still not going to get Jimmy Johnson. You're still not going to get Jeff Gordon. Maybe Danica comes back. Maybe, maybe Sam Hornish comes back, but are either of those going to move the needle now? I don't think so. So I think you're just really chasing your tail here looking to to try something different, and that's just not a something different that's ultimately going to be successful. Nor do I think Indy should move it to Saturday night, by the way. I think that would be even worse than moving it to Monday. Oh, I don't
1: think anybody's I- talked about moving the 500 to Saturday night. I think that's that talk has been more around the, the Brickyard 400, hasn't it? Just to... Sort of give people a reprieve from the heat, which is, has ostensibly been the reason for, for poor attendance for that race, despite the fact that it was actually very nice weather apparently um, the, that weekend this year, and there still were no people there. <laughs> um,
4: there were a couple there.
1: There were, as Marshall Pruitt like, put it, there were an awful lot of people dressed like aluminum seats.
4: It looked like Carb Day.
1: I think I don't know about that, <laughs> but anyway. Um, um, I really don't have anything to add to that. I think that Paul pretty much covered all of the arguments. Tony, did you have any any additional thoughts on the subject?
2: No, the the only thing I would just dovetail is just the the only thing possibly maybe moving it back to eleven, but I think the twelve builds up enough time as is. But that'd be that'd be my only additional comment.
1: Yeah, no, I think. Uh, I think we're all agreed all around that um, that moving it to Monday is a pretty bad plan. We've discussed on this show several times the fact that the one thing that, that IndyCar continues to do to shoot itself at the foot is to mess with its consistency. And if there's anything that's got some consistency going for it, it's the Indianapolis 500. And so uh, that would be the last place that, that you'd want to try to change something that seems to be working and uh, really, by most reports, seems to be on the upswing lately. So, uh, I think we're all agreed let's let's not mess with a good thing um, I think we're mostly down to just going over some some quick notes at the end of the day here um we by now most people will have seen the news that IndyCar is back in talks with uh, Circuit of the Americas to bring a date there to their calendar in twenty fourteen, which means that it's time to start um poking around for news on the 2014 schedule and what may or may not be there. And uh, traditionally, that starts happening on the mid-Ohio weekend. So uh, definitely will be time to keep ears to the ground on that note. Um, In feeder series news, there's been some talk in Firestone Indie Lights uh, for the last couple of weeks since the announcement in Toronto that Anderson Promotions will be, sorry, what was the exact wording, has been licensed to uh, to promote and operate that series for 2014 and going forward Um, and so it now will be operating and and uh, promoting the full Mazda Road to Indy Ladder, which is most people seem to agree. Good news. Not everybody likes all the ideas that Dan Anderson has. Um, most The one that seemed to to ruffle the most feathers was the idea of um, getting senior level drivers to, to take a step back, a la the uh, nationwide system in NASCAR. Most people seem to think that that's not a great idea, but I think that's the only thing that he's come up with that, people really seem to be dead set against and we've started to see now some some positive news coming out of that camp with the announcement this week that the um the 2014 car will have some modifications made to it and those modifications will be things like um, moving to paddle shifters and uh, things that will be able to carry forward to the new car that will be introduced in 2015 so um, that is great news to to see some direction on that and some decisive direction maybe not as quickly as everybody or some people feel that it should be, but I mean, you're really asking for miracles if you if you're asking for a complete overhaul for next season at this stage. So I think uh, level-headedness has prevailed here, um, and that series is now uh, announcing some of the uh, the staff changes that will be uh, that are are in the process of being made for uh, increasing support for that series in the future. So um, definitely good to see some some positive news come out of that doesn't doesn't help anything in the uh, in the short term of course, but uh, definitely good to see some growth there going forward. So um let's go on do we really need to make picks? Is anybody not gonna pick Scott Dixon for this weekend for Sunday? No Bueller Bueller <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> Maybe we should just pick a place and show.
1: yeah well may, let's do that. if it's not going to be Dixon, who's it gonna be Paul?
4: Uh, I'll take Hunter Ray for second, and uh, uh, I'll take Power for uh, to show.
1: What? Okay. Sure. You want to? You want to? No, I'm not going to be that cheeky. Tony.
4: I would go
2: Pagano for second, Hunter Ray third.
1: Um, I like Pagano for second as well. Uh, I think I might go with Elio for third. Hmm. Why not? Um, why not? Why not? Indeed. So. As it turns out, I will be there this weekend. I'm very excited to be able to cover uh, a second race weekend in a row for more Front Wing. I'm not going to be there on Friday, unfortunately, because uh, the, the better half has to work the day. So we're driving down Friday night and uh, we'll be there all day, Saturday and Sunday. And we're going to try something, I think, a little bit different this weekend in terms of coverage. Um, converting our daily summary posts that we uh, have been trying to do but have been finding somewhat challenging to be perfectly honest and uh, <laughs> and turning them into live blogs so that um as opposed to giving you all the information at once at the end of the day we're going to give it to you in short spurts in a post that's constantly being updated throughout the day and we think that that'll make it easier for us to keep you up to date and we'll give everybody a nice digest at the end of the day of all the topics that have been discussed throughout the day so keep an eye out for that um on saturday morning when the, the first of those gets underway and uh Here's another interesting little bit of news, and I don't think Paul even knows this yet. This is not confirmed, and it will not be confirmed until the weekend, but there is a chance that more front wing might be on a race car this weekend. Did you hear about this?
2: Uh, No. No, I have not. So uh, yeah, and I certainly didn't either.
1: <laughs> Sorry to keep you out of the loop, Tony. <laughs>
2: um, what about me?
1: So, uh, so young Daniel Burkett, who is a Canadian racer who is um, in, in USF2000 this year, um, provided us with a post-race blog of his race weekend experience in Toronto. That was actually very; it was very good, um, and it got some attention. And he enjoyed doing it. And so we've uh, we've entered into a little bit of a partnership. He He's going to continue to um, write up post-race blogs, post-race weekend blogs for us for the site, uh, and has offered us some space on his USF 2000 car. So that's I'm, pretty cool. It is. So I'm going to take a couple of decals down with me this weekend. And a uh,
4: oh, 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 what decals? Uh, what are um, decals? Jeez, <laughs> is that and Kanakianese for decals?
1: <laughs> it must be. Okay, so okay. I'm taking some decals down this weekend. <laughs> and, we uh, almost
4: made it through a whole art podcast. I know.
1: Well, it just can't happen. It Just can't happen. There's always got to be some cultural difference. You'd think that we were like completely different countries or something. Anyway, so you may see a picture pop up at some point of us being all excited because our logo is on a USF 2000 car. We'll see what happens. No promises, but I'm but I'm taking the stickers with me. So, we shall see. It's pretty cool. It is. It is. Um... And so uh, one final thing, please don't forget throughout the weekend if you're looking for any information, statistics, um, session results, any of that stuff, you will find it all at our event summary. The Mid-Ohio event summary will be posted sometime fairly early in the day um, on the same day that this podcast is posted and you will find it at morefrontwing.com slash event summary as you always do. And with that, I think we're ready to call it a day. Tony, thank you so much for giving us um, very last minute your time for uh, for your very insightful thoughts on uh, on the coming weekend at Mid Ohio and the other news in IndyCar. And uh, would you like to just tell us quickly where, where everybody can find your work?
2: Yep, um, I leave in the morning actually, so this was even better timing to head out to Mid Ohio myself. Um, it's Motorsports Talk, Motorsports T A L K dot dot com. It's part of their Blog Talk network
1: fantastic and uh, very happy to have any partnership with anybody at uh, NBC Sports that we can because we are all great fans of your work so thank you very much for for taking the time to uh, to to take part this evening and, uh, behalf of Tony and Paul and myself to everyone at home, thank you for giving us your time to be in your ears talking IndyCar. And, uh, we look forward to keep giving you all, uh, the updates from the ground that we can from Mid-Ohio Sports Car Course this weekend. And in the meantime, if you need IndyCar news and views, get a grip with more Front Wing.